This is the Untamed Ethos Podcast. Join us as investment pros, executives, and other experts talk business, personal growth, investing, politics, and the trending topics well-rounded pros need to know about. Authentic, unfiltered, and fun. Joshua Wilson is the founder of United Ethos Wealth Partners, a registered investment advisor. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of United Ethos's investment advice on this podcast, and nothing you'll hear on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. All opinions expressed by Joshua and by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of United Ethos or its affiliates. Welcome back to the Untamed Ethos podcast. I'm Joshua Wilson, and our special guest today is Bob Elliott. Bob Elliott is the co-founder, CEO, and CIO of Unlimited Funds. Um, I've been looking forward to talking with Bob. Bob's got a super interesting background, uh, probably the first botanist ever hired by Ray Dalio would be would be my, my guess. We'll, we'll learn more about that. Uh, he was um, on the I believe the head of, on the investment committee and I believe head of Ray Dalio's uh, research team at Bridgewater Associates. But he's also a kid from Detroit that went to some I don't know, what was it some unknown college in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Hartford or oh, Harvard, Harvard, yeah. Um, so you know, modest background like like that. But uh, Bob, welcome to the show today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, I'm really excited to to be here, and it's fun we can we can do this. I guess we we uh, we hung out at the uh, ETF conference, and it's nice to get back on the on the phone here and and talk some more. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Bob, I've got a I've got to start with the um, with the botany thing. You know, you're 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 a hedge fund manager. You've worked with Ray Dalio. How in the world does does one convince Ray Dalio to hire a botanist to to work in his hedge fund? Ah, uh, it's a good question. I mean, my my uh, my uh, academic career, I guess you'd call it. Um, you know, up until I left college, was really focused on the the pure sciences, uh, doing work in high school and in college. And I think, in a lot of ways, the pure sciences um, are really good at sort of creating a mindset that uh, that applies very well in financial markets, macroeconomies, investing um, for a couple of different reasons. I mean, I think the, the, the biggest and, and really my focus in, in the sciences was on systematics. So how do multiple different types of systems and plants intersect with each other to create uh, the development of plants over time? And so I think you know, in a lot of ways, you could think about that, the, the macro economy, the world, right, as very similar to that in the sense of, uh, you know, the macro economy is a multifaceted dynamic system that is intersecting in a number of different ways, a number of ways that are observable, testable, provable, uh, can be defined by rules, right, ways of describing it, but it's complex, it's interactive, it's immersive. And so I think in a lot of ways, the sciences uh, particularly, I think, you know, biological sciences were, are very applicable to, to the macroeconomic world. I think also, you know, you have to recognize that um, to do finance and investing well, it is a quantitative exercise. Uh, you know, the world of like the savant that just kind of magically comes up with ideas, that's not really how you can invest in a way that is durable over time, where it's repeatable over time rather than lucky. And so I think the sciences are really good around test a hypothesis, you know, create a hypothesis, test a hypothesis, quantify, assess, analyze, and develop those sort of systematic quantitative approaches to understanding how things work. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, I think it was, it was the best backing uh, that I could have because it also meant that I, my mind, you know, and my experience wasn't really clouded with, traditional finance and economics the way, uh, you know, a lot of folks who are in the business kind of all think the same because they all read the same books. They've all learned the same script. And I, you know, knew a lot about developing, you know, plant development and uh, could start afresh and new when thinking about macro and economies. When you think of, you talk about people coming from the same training, reading the same books, this, therefore you're, you're, 
you're in one way, you're in a lot of ways being taught what to think because I mean, we, we, I like to think of it as thinking how to think, right? But a lot of ways, if you're if you're thinking in terms of this is the way that we, this is the path that we get to this, and these are the established paths, and these are what we know works, and it it, it tends to it tends to the hard thing is making it about thinking and not about what to think. Because if you're prescribing a prescription, you're going to get to the same conclusion. And that's both the point of, of academics, but it's also kind of the drawback of, of academics there. So talk to me about what you think. Um, talk to me about when you think about this, you know, coming from it from a different angle, what do you mean when you say you're, you're, you're thinking differently? Is, is there any ways that that kind of came out that your way of thinking was a little different than those that maybe have had more formal training in economics, finance, things like that? Yeah. I, well, I mean, the first thing I'd say is when you, when you think about investing and really what you're trying to do, you know, there's, there's, there's two different ways that you can make money investing. One, you can passively invest and, you know, there's good reasons to believe over time that, uh, you know, if you hand someone your money, that they'll give you more back in return over time. That's sort of passive investing or what's called beta is the term that's often used to describe that uh, beta uh, source of return, which is beta. There's a different source of return, which is what's called alpha that the folks might have heard of. And the idea of alpha is being able to position uh, in asset classes in a way that's different from that passive investment strategy that generates returns, you know, in excess of passive investing. And the key thing to think about whenever you're, um, whenever you're doing alpha investing, if you're trying to generate alpha, by definition, your, your view, your positions have to be different from the consensus, right? The consensus is already reflected in the price of assets. Uh, All, you know, the weighted average consensus of everyone's views reflects that's what that's the price that exists today and so to to generate alpha you have to have a different opinion and so i think that's one of the key things that is important whenever you're thinking about how do you make money durably over over time in markets it's generating alpha how do you generate alpha have a different perspective and you can um you get a lot of benefit from coming at things from a different angle if you haven't been trained as directly or specifically in the same way most people, most other people have been trained. And I think it comes up functionally um, in a lot of different ways, but like I see it all the time in particular with the disconnect between uh, academic finance and practical finance. If you've been a, a market trader or a macroeconomist, you have to get into the nuts and bolts of how the macroeconomy works, kind of the way the scientist has to dissect the plant or the or the animal and really understand how the, all the systems really work. And so, I was, for instance, I was just talking to some academic economists recently, and they said, well, I think R star, which is the neutral rate, uh, the neutral interest rate for which inflation stays the same and, and the unemployment rate stays the same. Um, they're like, well, I think it's, you know, it should be structurally low because employment growth is low or way, work, uh, working age population growth is low and because um, <clears throat> and because uh, productivity is low, you know, neutral, the neutral interest rate should be low. But what happened, you know, but they're like, but we keep tightening and it seems like it's not doing much right now. And so I'm confused, like it should be that the neutral rate is very low and we've tightened a lot. But the reality is we've tightened a lot and not much has happened to slow down the economy. What gives? And they're sort of like locked in this box of this framework, right? They're, they're locked in the box of the framework of this is how we think about the way the world works rather than saying, OK, well, well, like, who cares what that theory says? Like, let's roll up our sleeves and understand, like, the, the, the practical cause effect drivers, which is like if I refinance my mortgage for 2 percent, I pay 2 percent for 30 years. Right. And so that means it doesn't matter what the short rate is. I still pay two percent for 30 years. And that, you know, you say that to someone who's trained in those frameworks and it's almost, you know, it, it, it's 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 so um, it's so inconsistent with the way that they they think that it, it, it highlights the challenges of coming from that sort of academic pedigree when you are uh, when, when you're trying to practically understand how markets and economies work. Yeah, and there's an there's an element that's understanding that you you need 
to acquire some of that education, understand how other people think and why they think that way. Like understand the, why people are making the moves that they're making. What strategy are they going? What, 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 um, what frameworks are they using? But at the same time, you're limited in that, in that sense to, um, what are we not considering? And we assume a certain amount of rationality that the world will operate according to these, to these frameworks. And this is, this is the prescription. Why isn't the prescription working? We did this analysis and we found out that these are the factors and these, or these are the factors during this time period. And this is what's worked before. And you get really stuck in this and it's hard to kind of pull out of that mindset and it become trying to force these things on a market that's not always rational. And we kind of think of if it makes sense on paper, if the math adds up, then we should get this result where people are not always rational. This is now we're getting into this whole behavioral type, um, behavioral economics and behavioral finances. All of this academic research is was birthed from the understanding that, hey, we can, um, homo economicus, which is this, this, this word we give for the economic man, you know, the man who is perfectly rational. If he, if he knows the data, if he knows, um, if he, if he knows the correct formula that he will act according to what is rational and so much of investment finance is assuming rationality. And assuming things will continue to be rational. And, and, and it, it's just that there's another factor that I haven't considered yet. There's always another factor. And, um, you know, this is even where the, the large data, you know, the, the mining models come in, as you can always find some other, some other factor. But it doesn't, it doesn't factor in that humans are always evolving and they're always evolving to these other factors, Right, that are that are coming in, and 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 factors can be silent. You know, they can they can go dormant for a long time, and then suddenly come come back. They're they're sprouted up from from whatever reason. You know, um, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things, um, one of the great things about um, about trading markets and investing is that it's an incredibly painful process. Uh, and the reason why I say that's great is because that there's so much learning that comes from that, from that immediate feedback, right? Where you quickly learn that you don't know what you're doing, right? When you have a theory and you put on a bet in financial markets and you get it wrong, which to be clear, like even the very best investors are getting things wrong, certainly in the macro space, like, you know, 40% of the time, 40, you know, any one bet over one month is wrong 40% of the time. Well, think about that. That means 40% of the time, like there's some learning to be had, right? And that's actually like, I think what you see is um, one of the challenges with academic finance and the sort of more traditional frameworks is that they're not, that there isn't enough translation of that theory to reality to get then the feedback back to, to, to have enough pain basically to say what works and what doesn't. Because Trust me, if you bet on a low R star and you put that bet on in the bond market, you know, a year ago and said, you know, bonds are going to decline rather, bond yields are going to decline rather than rise, you would have been painfully wrong and quickly learned the fact that you didn't, that that was, that was a wrong theory or, or there was something, as you described, that, that was missing from that set of theories, right? And so that's, you know, the best, the best people you could, you could tell people who have been in markets for a long time. The most confident people in markets are those people who just started trading. The least confident people are the people who have been around for 30 years and who have, you know, a hundred stories of their failure. Right? That's, that's, that is the, the least confident, most effective person is the person who has failed a hundred times over and has learned from it. And, and I think there's no place better than in markets to, to have that be the case. Uh, so I, I know Russell and I've talked about this before but in, in the classroom and, you know, um, 
it'll come up with students that, you know, I've worked with hedge funds and I'm a chartered market technician. And I used to teach options and technical analysis at Thinkorswim and TD Ameritrade and things like that. And, oh, you must know it all. And of course, you know, Russell's Dr. Vix. Yeah, he is, he is, he is the Vix man. And, 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 and I, and I think about the things that my students say to me, and then I look at, look at Russell and, and Russell's just as humble as he can be about, about these types of scenarios, because, um, you know, they read a book and then they watch a couple of YouTube videos and it's like, oh, just do this, just do this. And you're making tons of money. And, and I'm like, if, guys, if it was that easy, don't you think that I wouldn't be teaching classes? I would just be on an island somewhere, you know, just doing nothing but trade this stuff all the time. I wouldn't be <laughs> spending my time doing this. So yeah, the, the, um, you know, it is interesting when, when I was, when I was with, um, think or swim. And we were showing people, I would do classes and show people how to use indicators to do their trading. And it just seems like magic when it's like, oh, well, if this, this crosses this, that's a good sign. If this crosses this, that's a good sign. And if this does this, this is a good sign. And it's like, okay, but all of these things are, were put together by an algorithm. Okay. And so do you understand the algorithm? Well, of course not. I don't need the algorithm. I've got the magic. It's like, no, no, no. You know, the, this, all of this technical analysis is, is, is essentially, and I'm, I'm a little bit oversimplifying this, but I don't know if it's dramatically oversimplified. It's just different ways of looking at price and volume, right? Um, and different ways of quantifying these things, you know? And, um, and so, you know, if you change the input, this calculation to go from, a, from nine periods to 11 periods, that's going to change things. And so, I could literally teach you a, 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 a trading strategy that I can sit behind you and know what you're about to do because I can change my in inputs and know right before you're about to do something, I can do it first or right after you do something. I'm so it's like if, if you don't understand what's going into these things, you can, you, can, you can oversimplify these things and that's how you get caught because um, once things become obvious and, you know, they tend to disappear. I mean, there's been lots of studies. This is one of the problems, um, you know, when I was go going through the, the CMT, the chart market technician designation, I got really interested academically in technical analysis because I knew that it was controversial. And so I start going through these papers about it and it's like, oh, this worked and then it doesn't. And then it worked and then it doesn't. Well, yeah, it's like, it's like once it's published and well-known, then it's going to disappear. Why? Because that market's going to arbitrage that away and it's going to eliminate that opportunity. And maybe it'll come back eventually, but it needs to be forgotten about. People need to hate it and say it sucks and say it's terrible <laughs> again for, for it to have an opportunity to, to come back. You know? Yep. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, uh, you know, I think people who have been in the business for long enough recognize that, uh, that you know consistently and repeatedly uh knowing what is going to happen in the future is pretty darn hard uh i think that's that's the um the gist of it and so you know a lot of ways a lot of ways of managing money most effectively is to understand you know what your edge is like and then uh and then increase your sample size. Because if you do have edge, let's say the particular, you know, technical indicator that you're describing, you know, it certainly won't work 100% of the time. There's no way it will. Because, um, you know, there's always much more randomness than that. But if it works 55% of the time, then I think, uh, you know, and it and it works 55% of the time, at, you know, in, what, in any particular market, and then it works 55% of the time over time, and what that means is that you just want to be able, you want to put yourself in a position to bet that edge over and over and over again, right? And so that's where actually, like, you know, the 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 people, th those who are naive in trading markets will be overconfident in any particular view and essentially bet the farm. They may have edge, but they can't bet that edge over and over and over again. And those people who have been in the business long enough and recognize that they get things wrong a lot, will say, well, what do I have to do to protect, you know, to do what's traditionally called risk controls? I mean, it's not like a theoretical thing. It's basically like, how do I continue to be in the game if I'm wrong, right? That's what a risk control is. Like, first, let's assume I'm wrong. 
then let's assume, given that I'm wrong, I don't want to knock myself out because over time, I think I'm going to be right. And so that that's a perfect example. Like, so that's how the, the, the old grizzled trader focuses on risk controls because they know that they have some edge, but they need to keep playing in order to bet it. And they need to diversify across markets and across time, essentially. That's what uh, what they're doing is they're diversifying across time because that'll lead to a good outcome. And I think that's, um, you know, that's a that's a probably one of the most important lessons sitting here today, having done this for 20 years that, you know, if I could go tell myself at 22, that's what I one of the most important lessons I would have uh, conveyed to myself back then is how important that is. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I started this off with a joke, you know, about, uh, about uh, your uh, exceptional education. Uh, but you're not a, you're not a, just a typical Harvard guy, you know, and I, I, that really stood out to me because I'm not usually what people expect when they hear, <laughs> <laughs> when they hear where I went to school, but uh, you know, you weren't you weren't a farm kid from Alabama, but you were a kid from Detroit. Tell tell me a little bit about how you how you actually grew up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I uh, I grew up in Detroit. Um, uh, you know, I think in a lot of ways, I grew up in Detroit in the in the in the '90s. It was a very bad time for Detroit, with you know the automakers who are the sort of at the time the lifeblood of Detroit failing against you know foreign automakers. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it was not a, it was not a good time when I graduated from high school, there was essentially no jobs in the area. And, uh, basically every person I went to high school with no longer lives in Metro Detroit, which is kind of amazing to think about because the jobs were elsewhere. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it, uh, it, it created a, you know, a worldview. My, my, my father was, uh, uh, an entrepreneur, uh, with his fair share of successes and failures, um, which, you know, it's kind of, kind of funny. They, uh, I, I, I hear, I've read studies that like, uh, kids of entrepreneurs are, are much more likely to go, you know, like 10 times more likely to go into entrepreneurship than, uh, than, uh, kids, uh, who are not, uh, uh, kids of entrepreneurs. And I, and I think part of it is you understand the reality of it. Um, and part of it is you appreciate the freedom that it, uh, that it affords and it creates. Um, but you know, it's not the easiest, uh, the easiest lifestyle for sure. Um, and so I learned pretty early that, uh, the way I was going to be successful was, um, was trying to, you know, was basically working for it. It's the reality. So, you know, if you, I, I, I joke, I'm the last kid in America that had a paper route, uh, you know, I mowed lawns, I shoveled sidewalks, I cleaned offices, I caddied, you know, I hustled for, uh, for every, uh, dime I had, I, um, I, uh, I, the, the, the library had a, a, a recurring, uh, uh, program where if you read books, you like got keys to figure, to, to possibly unlock a, a box to get, to get toys. And I was like, you know, I figured out how that system worked <laughs> and read all the books I could. So, you know, it was, it was a hustle. <laughs> it was a, it was a, it was a hustle. Uh, but, uh, you know, it taught me a lot of good life lessons that, uh, still stick with me today. Uh, yeah, those, uh, those things, uh, those jobs really shape your character. And I think that they come out, um, I think they're all things that you don't necessarily see, how they um, are going to influence your ability to do something sometime later in life. You know, I've, I've, I've got a story at, at Brown. I, I, I learned to talk to everyone through the jobs I had in, in high school. You know, I, I worked at a Piggly Wiggly grocery store. Um, and yes, Piggly Wiggly is a, is a real grocery it's, store. Yeah, it's same. a real thing. It's, a real uh, thing in Alabama, it's a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real thing, Piggly Wiggly. I uh, worked on a farm and, you know, the farm was all baling hay, building fences, shoveling manure. And it was either grocery store or farm, uh, you know, and, and, uh, but, and, and there was cleaning bathrooms and my dad owned a, a junkyard. And I could say my dad was an entrepreneur, but the truth is he owned a junkyard that sat right in front of the landfill. So it was not a, it was definitely not a classy joint of, um, of when you hear entrepreneurship, it's not exactly what you're thinking of. You typically not thinking of a junkyard in front of a landfill, you know? Um, 
and you know, being, I think just being able to talk to so many different types of people really helped me in a way that I think it's hard to quantify. It's either you trusted, you trust that that's true or you don't. But, you know, I, um, I remember being at Brown and I remember if you got locked out of your room, it cost $75 to, for them to, you got, you got one or two like free ones, they would come unlock it. But then after that, it was like a charge of 75 bucks. And so I remember getting accidentally locking myself out and I'm like, oh man, and I see the janitor. And so I, and the janitor says, Hey, are, are you locked out? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, he comes over and he's like, don't tell anybody I did this. And so he unlocks my door for me. And uh, one of my friends comes up a few minutes later. He's like, Hey, how did you get him to unlock your door? And I said, I he just, Oh yeah, sorry. I didn't, didn't we're supposed to see that, you know? And he says, uh, I've asked him to do it for me. He wouldn't do it. And, and actually I dawned on me and I said, uh, do you know his name? And he said, no. I said, well, his name's Tony. I was like, he's, he's got, uh, uh, he's got a son, Anthony who plays baseball and just started telling him about this guy and his life. And, I talk to him almost every day and you become friends. And it's like, it's, it's a, it's an unknown type of a person for a lot of folks that they never, it's like, they don't see him. He's just, he's the janitor. It's like, no, he's Tony. And he's in our building every single day. It's not like someone you just saw one time going through a hallway in a, in a hotel, but maybe it's a little bit different, but this is someone who works in our environment and it's very easy to have a conversation with them. And I think that, you know, in, in the wealth management space and in investing, you know, we tend to think of everyone as having this one um, way of thinking uh, or one way of being, you know, and it's like, it's like when you hear Harvard with you, you make all these instant assumptions and uh, some of them are true, which is that you're a very intelligent person, but some of them are, couldn't be further from the truth, right? And so I think that, you know, one of the benefits of having different jobs and different exposures and different uh, people that have, have different uh, social classes and different uh, economic statuses, the benefit is you learn to talk to people from different backgrounds and different, different ways. And everyone sitting in front of you, all of your investors don't necessarily come from, um, they're all mixes, you know, they're all mixes of their background. And I am, I am where I went to school. I am where I grew up. I am the friends that I choose now. All those things are, are qualities that are part of who I am and not any one of those sums me up completely. And I think that's, uh, you know, that, that realization can help, help you in investing and really probably anywhere else. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I think, uh, a, you know, in many ways, a diverse set of experiences and, you know, this is, this is probably, uh, an overly simple life lesson, but like, having a very crisp understanding that, you know, you have to work hard and there are benefits to working hard uh, in all sorts of different ways, whether it's intellectually hard or physically hard is, uh, you know, is, is valuable for sure. I think in the finance space, also in, in the macro economy, I think one of the things that is uh, interesting about it is, you know, often people will talk about wall street versus main street and imagine, you know, you're a New York, based, you know, macro person who has never walked on Main Street, right? Doesn't know and understand uh, what the decisions are when, you know, income is slowing and you got to think about, do you pay for the car or the credit card debt or the house and what those choices are and how people make those choices? Like, if you haven't lived there, it is challenging to have any idea or appreciation of what Main Street is. And, you know, like Main Street is uh, most of America. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like people quickly forget that Main Street is most of America. And, you know, even though Wall Street thinks of itself as the most Wall Street and Silicon Valley really think of, of themselves as being the most important areas of the country, the, the things that really matter and drive everything. In reality, you know, all the space in between is, uh, you know, makes up a huge portion of the U.S. And I think if anything in this cycle has really um, ha has the inability to understand what's going on on Main Street has actually really confused a lot of coastal financial professionals, because what they see is, you know, a tech or a venture slowdown and they see a finance slowdown. 
And it's hard for them to even appreciate that the unemployment rate in Columbus is 1.5%, right? And what the second, and, and if you're running a restaurant in Peoria, it's impossible to find staff. Like they, you know, it's just like impossible. Like it's so hard for them to appreciate that because Peoria isn't in their mindset, but it's Peoria that's driving the wage growth, that's driving the inflation that we're seeing, right? That's what's going on. It's not the venture capitalist whose, you know, tech idea didn't work out. It's the 90% of America that where labor markets are very tight, you know, that are earning under $150,000 a year per household. Those are the things that are actually driving what's happening in the macro economy today. And if, you know, if you've never lived it, you'd never know. Like, it'd just be very hard to really appreciate that that's how, you know, the rest of the world works. This, I mean, to me, I start thinking about sentiment, right? And we think of sentiment as the stock market generally because sentiment of stocks, but it's not just this. It's also, you mentioned these, it's decisions that people are making on Main Street are, are what's driving the economy. It's what's driving Walmart stock and, you know, Target stock. It's, a, it's, 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 it's driving whether people are driving into financial centers and urban areas in order to spend their money or not, you know. Um, it's it's one of the weird things I think that we tend to forget is, you know, there are towns that may only have 10,000 people in it, but you've got 100,000 people that are going to that town very regularly to do their business. And so you can be from a small town in Oklahoma uh, that, that you can say, well, it's a, it has 10,000 people, but there's literally 100 that are coming there within a month, different types of people that are coming from different surrounding areas and they're making decisions to go there. How often do they go there? What do they go there for? How are they spending their money once they get there? And of course, then there's people that are going to major cities as well. Um, but we tend to forget that, you know, metropolitan areas are a magnet for people and how often those people go to those areas um, is a big deal. And, 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 are they willing to go and what are they willing to spend money on um, you know, when they get there? Um, you know, you, I'll, I want to get into a little bit about what you do. Obviously what you're doing is, is interesting because um, I look at it as making hedge funds more accessible and you're not trying to be um, one particular hedge fund. You know, one thing I, I, I'll, I'll explain for my, for my guests that may not be super familiar with hedge funds is, the word hedge fund is one of the most confusing terms in finance because what in the world does it mean? And it, it, it is literally a structure. It's a, it's a way of doing business. But first off, most hedge funds don't hedge, um, which is a totally different topic. And hedge funds can, there's, there, it, it, it's a blanket term for, diff, for funds that, that use a hedge fund structure, but they can do a lot of different things. And so it's, it, it's always annoying to me when I hear uh, pundits say hedge funds did X. It's like you're taking all these different, very, very different things and saying, this is what they all did. Well, that's kind of like saying, you know, looking at the NBA and saying uh, teams went you know, the NBA plays uh, 82 regular season games. And so the you know, NBA teams went 41 and 41. Well, yeah, on average, they did. They all went, if you average all the wins and all the losses together, um, yeah, so you you average all these things together. And when you average all them together, if they're doing very different things, then the average doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't tell you that one team went 72 and 10 and one team went 10 and 72 and everything in between because you just averaged it down all these things that are doing very, very different things. So, um, you know, when we think about the hedge fund industry, it's, it's very, very broad and it's not specific at all. Um, and so when we say hedge funds, um, it can be tough for people to kind of understand that. And so I think also the other thing about hedge funds is they tend to have a reputation and it depends on who you are. They have a reputation of being only accessible by the by the ultra by the very wealthy, or they have the um, the 
and, and, and wonderful and everyone should be able to get into a hedge fund and it's it's it, it's it's you're privileged if you can and you're unprivileged if you can't because they don't want little money they only want big money so you have this perception then you also have this perception of oh it, they're they're high risk they're for super high risk and high return and that's what they're for and the truth is is really all of that is 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 pretty erroneous overall because there's such a difference amongst hedge funds, right? So I'm setting the tone for you, for you, uh, but I, I don't want to speak for you, Bob. Why did you, uh, you, you, you started this ETF and um, why? why? Why start a hedge fund ETF? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, when you think about uh, hedge funds, as you say, which is a structure, that there's a lot of different styles uh, or approaches to uh, managing money within that structure. I think the overwhelming, um, or I should say, for folks who use that structure, I think the overwhelming picture is that that is a structure that's that's usually used for the most sophisticated asset managers out in the world. And the reason why that is, is because the structure that they've created is one which, um, frankly, pays them relatively significant fees for uh, their ongoing management of money and uh, and and success, you know, consistent success in the financial markets. And so, in some ways, the best way to think about hedge funds uh, as as a group is even though they're very diverse, it's like picking off the 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 cream of the crop when it comes to asset managers, right? Like if you think about, I don't know, in tennis, like you know, Nadal and Djokovic and Federer are all very different in terms of how they play, right? They're all excellent. They're all the cream of the crop, but they're all very different, totally different in terms of like their style and their strategy and things like that. And so in a lot of ways, what what you could, you could think about hedge funds as being those sorts of folks who are, uh, you know, in, in, in tennis, or you could think about the same way in basketball, which there's obviously a wide range of different strategies or styles or ways that the very best players play, and just sort of putting them together as like an all-star team of investors, right? And I think that's that's the thing that, um, so it makes sense that over time, that sort of all-star team of investors should be able to generate differentiated returns, that alpha that we talked about earlier in the show. They should be able to do that over time and frankly do do that over time very reliably because they are the best. Um, you know, any one particular manager at any one point in time may not be great, but all of them together do pretty darn well. Like, you know, can return my, you know, generate returns that are meaningfully better than stocks with, uh, with uh, substantially less volatility, right? That kind of gives you a sense as to the quality of their returns. Um, the problem is that those managers, uh, first of all, are not accessible to the everyday investor. As you say, basically only institutional investors can invest in funds and the best funds basically are closed. So you can't even invest in them anyway. And number two is they basically take 90% of the alpha that they generate for themselves in fees, leaving even the investors that could, that, that do invest in them, not that, not much better off. And so our idea you know, uh, was that that sort of got me to thinking starting a few years ago about this idea of whether you could sort of bring diversified low cost indexing, which obviously has totally changed stock and bond investing, right? In the same way we're talking about hedge funds today, we could be talking about mutual fund managers, equity mutual fund managers in the 90s, right? Uh, in, in, in the same way, could we bring that sort of diversified low cost indexing, but bring it to the world of two and 20, which is the typical fee structure of most hedge funds, that 2% two, 2 of assets under management and 20% of performance fees. Could we bring that to the world of hedge funds? Now, you can't, you can't invest directly in the funds because they'll charge you the 2 and 20. So instead, our idea was to build a replication, build a technology that replicates what these fund managers are doing. And it's drawn on a combination of our experience. My co-founder, Bruce McNevin, and I have decades of experience in the hedge fund business. We know we've built these strategies. We know how they work um, across all these different fund styles. And our idea is let's use technology, our experience, put that together and build uh, a way to see what they're doing in close to real time. And then what we could do is we could take that understanding, package it 
into a set of positions that could back an ETF. And if we launch an ETF, we can make it available for every investor. And because we're using technology instead of, you know, star PMs that demand high salaries, uh, you know, we can we can offer it at a much lower fee structure than what a typical uh, LP position, a, a typical hedge fund style structure would look like. So, you know, we like to say it's it's uh, what we're trying to do is sort of bring diversified indexing, that concept that has been you know so radically changed equity and bond investing and bring it to the world of hedge funds and make it available to everyone. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna slow down and, and revisit a few of the things you said, just to make sure our listeners are, are keeping up with a few things. So one of the things you mentioned was two and twenty, and this is just a reference to the typical way that uh, no, all hedge funds don't do it exactly this way, but this is the the typical is two percent um, management fee, um, so two percent of the invested value plus twenty percent of the gains. That's what he means by two and twenty. And when he's talking about uh, alpha, uh, first we'll start with beta. Beta is basically saying this is the passive return of whatever the benchmark is. So if it is an equity um, hedge fund, for example, there's different types of hedge funds. Hedge funds can, can invest in all different types of strategies, derivatives, commodities, and debt, all kinds of things. But we'll just use, for example, equity. If you're using the S&P 500 as the benchmark. If the if the S&P 500 does 8% this year, then 8% is your beta. That is what the what you'd have gotten just by passively putting it in an index fund, you've got an 8%. Alpha is anything you get on top of that. So if the S&P 500 did 8% and, we, and the hedge fund did 12%, then that 4% is what you refer to as the alpha. Right. And so what Bob is saying is, well, the problem with this is that uh, hedge funds overall, um, number one, the best ones don't need your money. Um, In fact, a lot of times they max out the amount of money they can manage because of the strategies they're going into. They're not a lot of them aren't infinite. Um, You know, for example. There's only so much arbitrage before the arbitrage disappears. You can only put so much money to work in these things. And the market is only so liquid, right? There's only so many people willing to take the other side of the trade, right? So oftentimes these things will max out. So that's a problem for investors. Not only do you have to have the minimums are typically high, not only do you have to have um, the, the money to get it to, to get into a great hedge fund is you got to the best hedge funds don't really need your money. A lot of them are already closed to new investors. So unless you've already got a relationship with them, you're not getting into it. So, and then Bob says, okay, so the best of the best, you can't get into them. And then the, and then he says that once you think about ones you can get into, a lot of times, a lot of the alpha that they actually provide is eaten up by, um, by the uh, by, by their uh, incentive fee. There's nothing wrong with 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 with, with having an incentive fee because this is just this is this is value. If, if everyone else is getting eight percent and you're getting twelve, and you're going to take a portion of that, well, every year you're not going to get twelve. You know, maybe some years you just get an extra half percent on top of beta or something like that. So you're not getting a whole lot for it. So it becomes tough as well. I can't get into the best. They're high minimums. What do I do to get into to hedge funds that it would make sense if the fee wasn't so high? And so there's a lot of a lot of this is, well, if the fee wasn't 2% and the incentive fee wasn't 20%, then it would make sense for me to get into these. But I still don't have the money to go get into five of them, much less 10 of them. Right. And so it, it is it becomes so restrictive to uh, to most investors to be able to get into first off you got to be able to pick those five or ten or, or ten uh, hedge funds or whatever and then getting into them and so what Bob is saying is his goal was to be able to create a hedge fund like return in a wrapper an ETF wrapper that's accessible to everyone and it's not trying to it and, and I, I want to emphasize that this is not as I understand it a fund of funds. It's very common to see fund of hedge funds. And when I first heard 
um, before I'd spoken to you and, and, and understood what you were doing. I first heard of a hedge fund and ETF and I thought, how's an ETF going to own hedge funds and have a real, I, I, I think about all the obvious, right? Is well, a, hedge, a fund of hedge funds and how's that going to work? How's that going to be any cheaper? How, you know, um, and can you even do that? Can you, you know, um, but what I, but then what I understood is you're, you're actually replicating hedge funds and not this cheesy replication that I hear as well. You hear this stuff online, Bob, I, I, um, you know, you can look at their 13 F's and see what they bought, see what they sold. Uh, what you want to look at months old trades. Like they, you, you don't even know if they're still in those things, right? They're not broadcasting. They're not telling you what they're going to do before they do it. You're looking at old information that they did a quarter ago or, or, or whatever. Um, and you don't know, you know, you don't get it. The, 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 by the time you find out what they've done, it might be too late right? Because timing does matter on these things. So you're not replicating by following their trades three months later that they did three months ago. Um, you're actually um, using machine learning and artificial intelligence, data analytics to essentially replicate using publicly traded securities, right? Um, yep. And I'll let you explain this, but but what what does it mean to replicate without investing in? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the basic idea um, that we're we're trying to, if you think about these funds, of course, there's lots of different styles of and lots of different strategies. So, like an equity long short manager primarily trades, you know, in individual securities or sectors or country indices. They'll have long and short views there versus a global macro manager. Who might trade equities to some extent, but also trades currencies and commodities and fixed income and um, you know uh, a, a wide range of credit, a wide range of different uh, asset classes. And so, if you think about it, um, there is sort of like a universe for each one of these sort of major strategies. There's sort of a universe, a selection of plausible opportunities that these implausible exposures that these fund managers may have on it at any point in time. And so actually what you can do, and, and, and of course we have like a more intimate understanding of that because we've actually built the strategy. So we actually know what's in the books and, and things like that. Although, you know, you can kind of get a general sense like global macro trades, big macro asset classes. Right. And so if you, if you say, well, what I can do is I can look, I know what types of assets that they trade and I know uh, what their returns were, their their recent returns, which we actually get pretty timely information. We see daily returns with just like one or two days behind when they occur and monthly returns uh, just a few weeks behind. You can look at those two things and you can say, well, I can see what their returns are and I know what they trade. And so I bet I can infer from those two pieces what types of positions they must have had on in order to generate the outcomes that they do. And so I think, you know, a lot of people will do this sort of intuitively, like in the first half of 2022, like equity, uh, global macro funds did great, right? They, they had their twice as good as their best uh, half year ever before that. And you're like, okay, well, they had totally outstanding returns. And we know over here, what happened was in early 2022, stocks went down, bonds went down, short rates uh, uh, bond prices went down, short short rates rose, gold went up, oil went up, right? You sort of, we, we, we could see all that. We all, we knew that those were the market moves. We knew what, um, we knew what asset classes, those are the asset classes they traded, traded. And we know, of course, that they had really good returns. And so they must have been holding positions aligned with that to get the outcomes that they were. Now, what we do functionally is, you know, a little more sophisticated than that, but we basically take that intuition that you might have when you look at a manager and we we run, uh, you know, essentially a sophisticated Monte Carlo simulation to, in, to infer in close to real time what the positions are uh, that are, you know, what sort of positions are driving the returns that we're seeing from these managers. And because, as I said before, this is sort of the, the cream of the crop in terms of asset managers. If you can infer what positions they have on that are driving their returns, then uh, that typically will, will create 
a, a set of returns that are more consistent and better than uh, index investing. That's the alpha that exists, right? So by inferring what they're doing, we can uh, we can basically piggyback on their insight, right? Draw upon their insight of the most sophisticated investors in the world, and be able to then understand what those positions are, and uh, and use those that understanding to back our our ETF. And so that's that's essentially what we're doing is solving for what sort of positions we're seeing them. Uh, seeing drive their returns in close to real time uh, in order to to then determine what's in the ETF. So, so you know, and you're not a guy that's coming from this from something completely different. You know, you you were in Dalio's. Uh, you know, we built his, the strategies. You know, you, you built uh, these strategies. So this exactly. is this is all. Uh, these are all courses. If I would use a golf now, these are all courses that you've walked before. Yes. Oh, for sure. And, um, so I, I look at this and I think, you know, this is interesting because I, 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 as you were talking, I was thinking about biology again and it's like, okay, I don't, if I don't know what you would recommend that I eat and I don't know what you're eating, but if I was, if I was a, a person that knew how to test these things, I could find out what was in your gut and infer Based on what a, you're eating, <laughs> num, yeah, a number of tests. Totally, you know, totally. I can test your insulin. I can test all these other things. What's your insulin reaction to this meal, and all these the composition of of, of these? Ah, like, uh, you know, there was definitely some stake in this. I can tell from these other things that I that I. So that that's interesting. And the thing I, I think that 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 I didn't really see coming of that that's interesting is you know, there's plenty of funds that you can say that don't want your money. And they don't, they don't want, you know, a thousand dollars here and a thousand dollars there from ETF investors. They don't want your money that way. They want only big, big checks. And right. uh, if they want to check it all, because like you said, they're, you can, you can do this with funds that are actually already closed. That's exactly. Powerful. Exactly. And that's, and, and, and that's the idea is that even though the, uh, you know, the replication process of course is imperfect, right? Cause you're never going to, you're never going to precisely know exactly what's in these funds but the fact that you can have a pretty darn good understanding of what's in the you know all these world-class managers puts you in a in a good position uh in order to you know put you uh, uh drives or generates what should be a, a pretty consistent return stream a, a high quality return stream over time you know commensurate with that you know on par with what these managers are able to do. Yeah. I mean, the, it's, it's out of, first of all, it's out of bounds. You're taking something that's completely out of bounds right. or you, you can't, you can't, you can't get into it. So if you can't even get, get, get into it, it's like your alternative is, well, it's not the original. Okay. Well, the original is closed. Right. Now you can't what? get the original, right? <laughs> Nobody can get the original basically. Right. right. I mean, maybe if you're a $500 billion sovereign wealth fund, you can get the original, sure. but if, if Warren Buffett calls, they'll, they'll take the call. Sure. Exactly. exactly. But not for you and I, <laughs> It's not going to happen. So that that's that's super interesting, and and I I and, I, and this is you, you gave the analogy or gave the the illustration of you know in, you you can infer, but you're doing more than inferring. This is a lot of this is is data analytics. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean it, it is uh, it is data analytics on uh, on their returns, and and there's actually a lot of information value that exists in the returns, and and part of the reason why that is is um, is because uh, positioning is path dependent. Now, that's a really interesting point, which which means that when you see today's outcomes, which are of course a function of today's positions, those positions are a function of yesterday's positions, and the reason, and which can be observed looking at yesterday's returns. And I think that's really that's a really important point because what it means is that, and, and the reason why that is, is because Hedge funds, you know, hedge funds sort of have this idea, talk about sort of uh, ideas that are not really ideas about hedge funds that are not true in reality. A lot of people have this idea that hedge funds are like vastly changing their positions day to day. And the reality, you know, again, it, it goes very closely to someone, you know, I've, I've managed a $30 billion book. Like I, I know exactly what it takes to, to execute in the markets. The reality is 
any hedge fund that's managing any reasonable amount of money can't actually trade that quickly. And the reason why that is, is because if they start to trade too quickly, they start to move the market and dealers will start to front run them. And so, you know, I won't, we could, we could have a whole nother podcast on all the nuances of how you go through by effectively essentially faking out the market in terms of what your directionality is and things like that. But the reality is it takes time. It, it, it takes a fair amount of time. And so if you can see what they're doing, if you can see their returns relatively quickly and you know it takes them a while to change their positions, then you actually, you know, you, you have a pretty good sense as to what they're doing at any point in time. And the trade-off, which is the big deal trade-off, is the trade-off is not perfection. That Yeah, of course, we'd love to have a perfect replication and have all their positions and know perfectly what they're doing. But that's not the trade-off here. What the trade-off is, is uh, not, be, as you say, not being able to get access to these funds. And also, even for those who could have access for the funds, the trade-off is we're charging a quarter of the management. Well, that's a big difference, right? A big difference if you're if you're saying I'm giving you, you know, I'm I'm creating a return that's similar but at a quarter of the cost. And for U.S.-based investors, the ETF wrapper typically affords a much lower tax structure. It's a more tax-efficient structure. Um, the reality is that that may that adds even adds further to the outcome to the post-tax post-fee outcome for the investor. And the reality is no one cares what your gross of fees, gross of taxes returns are. They only care what they see in their bank account at the end. And that's the net of fees, net of taxes, costs. And we're just doing this in a much more efficient structure. Access to the best, lower fees, lower lower taxes. That's what we're doing. Um, and, and, you know, when you net that all out, even though it's imperfect, it's a lot be- you're a lot better net, uh, net of those things than you would be uh, it, you know, even if you could invest in the funds themselves. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, um, this actually, this is probably kind of random. It reminds me of, um, one of my classes this past semester and we were talking about Costco and that they literally, um, have suppliers from wines and vodkas and other suppliers that they will put their Kirkland brand on, but it's coming from the same factory. It's the same exact thing. And it's like, okay, we're going to get a 60% discount on this product that's from the same exact factory. It's it's putting in a bottle with this label versus a bottle with this label. With this label, we get to charge twice as much. And, you know, it's like, I mean, is it the same bottle? No, you, you're, it's an inferior label. <laughs> that's right. That's what it is. It's a different label. The label is not embossed with, um, you know, with, 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 with gold, um, you know, embossing or whatever. Uh, but it, it's not a, the most beautiful bottle on the market, but it's also half the cost. So, yeah, I, I think that these things are very approachable to, to folks, you know, to say it's, 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 it's not exact replication, but it's, uh, it's, 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 it's pretty good. It's like, uh, you know, if you drink the Kirkland signature wine, you should like, uh, the HFND ETF. <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly um, it's pretty close and a whole I, lot cheaper <laughs> i see it i, I see it it, make, it, make, it makes sense it makes sense both from the from my um rural alabama country boy perspective that's, that's right and from that's my right, ivy that's... league perspective it makes sense all the way around <laughs> yeah, now you know now we're now we're talking that's uh that's uh that's exactly if, if, if right I can, if I can bring those two those two guys together it makes sense for me it's, it's um so let's talk for a few minutes about uh about working with uh with dalio I mean, uh, you know, this is, he's a, he's an absolute legend and so many folks are influenced by his writings and by his speeches and things like that. Talk to me about, about Dalio. What was it like? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think Bridgewater was a great place to, to, um, to start a career, uh, for, you know, particularly around, you know, macroeconomic thinking and macro investing. Um, uh, you know, obviously Ray's a gifted thinker. Uh, when it comes to to macroeconomics and and in particular, I think uh, you know I learned from him and others there uh, about the the necessary rigorousness uh, that is really required to develop a good uh, a, a real understanding that is deep enough uh, to be able to bet on. Um, you know, I think uh, one of the challenges when people are sort of coming into the 
to the world of asset management or 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 money management uh you know it's it's uh it's very easy to have uh opinions about how you know markets or economies are going to play out but it's much much harder to uh to be able to generate a differentiated view with edge consistently over time and create uh, a, a, a consistent return stream. And so in a lot of ways, you know, what early in my career, I really learned very, uh, uh, very, very uh, deeply this idea that, you know, you really have to bring a level of rigorousness uh, and testing to make sure that, you know, your ideas are actually good um, because it's very easy to come up with ideas and it's very hard to come up with ideas that generate durable alpha. Um, and that's really what you have to have in order to be a great investor. And so, um, you know, I, I can't think of a, a you know, a, a better place to have learned those core, you know, ways of approaching things as well as uh, getting a deep, rich understanding of the macro economy still stays with, with me today. Um, and, uh, you know, I think is, it, it was an important foundation uh, as an investor. I think also connecting to the how we opened this, um, you know, it was really in a lot of ways a place to learn asset management and uh, macroeconomics from a blank sh blank slate perspective. Um, you know, it was uh, particularly when I started. You know, most the vast majority of people who started when I did were, had no finance background. Uh, you know, had a very, you know, they were, uh, uh, you know, government majors and, you know, botanists and engineers and all sorts of different perspectives on things. And I think that actually created a really, uh, what it did organizationally is it created that, uh, you know, a, a pool of people who had um, non-consensus ways of thinking about the world uh, and thinking about markets and economies. And it also created uh, a real, a real uh, opening, a real open environment to explore and create real depth uh, in terms of understanding. And so, you know, I, I, I appreciate. I, there was a, there was a, the first year folks uh, uh, were involved in essentially a one-year college-type class to basically understand the fundamentals of macro and of markets, and and that was an incredibly. Uh, 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 it, it, transformative time for me. And then I went on to basically lead that class for 10 years, teaching others through that, you know, bringing others through that experience. And so that was super, you know, I mean, there's, I'm sure you appreciate this, you know, there's one thing to go through a class and learn a ton and develop an understanding. And it's a whole nother to have to stand in front of the room for 10 years yeah. <laughs> and teach people this stuff. Absolutely. Uh, and so it that requires was, a totally different level of understanding, totally different level. And, and I, I personally loved it, and, and I don't know if you, you have the same experience, but I love it because it forced me, like I kept lear learning through the process. Every single year I kept learning, even if it was the same basic material, the markets were different, the economy was different, there was always something different. And so it just kept forcing and challenging me about what I was thinking and how I was thinking about things, which was, which was awesome uh, in terms of becoming a better market professional. I think it, the way I, I tend to think of it is um, when you have to teach something and continue teaching it to different types of people, um, if you're passionate about what you do and you take pride in it, then you are going to have to continue to try to look at the same thing from different angles. And I can describe a elephant if I'm looking at the elephant from the side, right? But the way I describe it, if I'm looking at it face to face is going to be different, right? Versus from the bottom up and from the back of the, in the different angles. And then now, I've, now I'm saying, well, in this elephant illustration, we're assuming I'm 30 feet away from it. Okay, well, now what if I get 30 inches away from it? What if I get three inches away from it? And it's tusks versus its tail versus its coat. All these different things are illuminating something about my understanding of this of this magnificent beast. And it's by having to 
uh, to, to continue looking at the same thing over and over that you have to continue to push your understanding of it in order to reveal it to, to other people. And that effort that it's very easy to settle in on your understanding of something when you're only understanding it for yourself. Oh, totally, totally. And, and it was such, uh, you know, that, that experience, uh, was such an important part of the overall, um, uh, you know, of, of my development, honestly, my career development, uh, was, was, um, uh, was, was super important. And, and even now, you know, in a lot of ways, I, uh, you know, I, I, as, as part of starting unlimited and I, I'm on Twitter, all at uh, Twitter, uh, regularly, you know, basically talking about, uh, the macro economy and, 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 and views and thoughts on markets. And I think one of the things that people don't realize is a big reason why I do that is it, it's like standing in the classroom, <laughs> right. And, it, and, um, and it's, and it's, and it's a gr such a great forcing mechanism to get out there and like put the thoughts down the the thinking the rigorousness because man if you if you aren't thinking well about these things there's plenty of people on the other side to challenge you uh which is great which is really great um and really in in a lot of ways uh continues that you know continues that 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 spirit of uh standing up in front trying to teach others and the and the benefits that come with it Absolutely. I, I agree hundred percent. Well, Bob, I've, uh, I've really enjoyed having you on the show today. Uh, for those who've uh, have enjoyed the show, look Bob up on, uh, on, on Twitter. What is your handle on Twitter yeah, there, Bob? I'm, I'm at Bobby unlimited. Um, so you can check it awesome. out. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, and folks, thanks for tuning in. Please like follow share. Um, uh, we, that, that helps us grow our influence and, and bring you more, uh, more excellent guests like Bob, uh, Bob, I've, Really enjoyed this conversation today. Thank you so much for joining me. It was great. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it as well. It was uh, it was fun to to catch up in in, in person, so to speak, uh, uh, even more. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Bob. Talk to you later.